Hello, and welcome to Frame by Frame, a song-by-song analysis about legendary progressive rock band King Crimson. Come and join us in our test of discipline. Greetings, comrades. We are back talking about King Crimson once again, because the finish line is still very, very far away. But it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And hopefully you're enjoying the journey along with us. So this is Ryan, as always. And joining me always is Avery. And Avery, how are things? Pretty good. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Got my, for, for the audience at home, I got my first shot of the COVID vaccine. And I should be getting my second one in about three weeks time from when we record this. So that'll be fun. And we'll see if I get any crazy ass side effects. I'll I'll let you I'll keep you all informed because I'm I am interested in how my body reacts. So far I'm doing okay. A little sore in the arm, but you know. It's the Pfizer, if anyone's interested. So but in any case, enough enough of real world shit. Let's talk about fantasy land. Let's talk about <laughs> easy money by King Crimson. We have now gotten to side B of the Lark's Tongues album, and it starts out with this this bluesy, I, I guess I would say bluesy kind of a jam. Yeah, bluesy that, hard rock. Yeah, that's definitely the most upfront song on the record. There's no, there's no real buildup. There's nothing that soft about it, except yeah. for that middle section. Yeah, um, like you flip the record over and then you, you put the needle on and then just immediately you're met with this loud, crunchy, distorted guitar. Yes, and a little bit of uh, Jamie Muir putting his fist in in clay in wet clay. So that's that's hidden. <laughs> is in that the, mix. the um that stomping sound? Is that what that is? I believe so. Um, on the Lark's Tongues box set, could have been on the other like smaller deluxe editions. They put Jamie's percussion track on Easy Money. They just soloed it and just made it its own thing. So you can hear all the weird stuff that he's doing, which is really cool. I'd wish they had done it for the rest of the tracks on the record. It would have been nice to have heard what he's doing on everything, because I think quite a few times he gets buried, especially on here at certain points. But also, he's not doing all that much. But in any case. Yeah, I mean, I can't really imagine all these extra sound effects being added to the other songs. Like, especially not like Exiles, like that song is way too serious to have like that weird laughing and zipper sound. And the my, my, which I think is, I think that's Jamie saying (laughs) the the my, my in there. The laughter at the end, I'm not sure who that is. I always thought that was Jamie as well, but I'm, I'm not positive. As far as I know, there isn't a credit to it. But in any case, uh, what is your overall take on Easy Money? A problematic banger. What's uh, what is uh, problematic about it? Well, <laughs> honestly, okay. So the the studio version, the lyrics are just like whatever, just kind of misogynistic in the way that all most 70s rock is kind of misogynistic like it's about a prostitute a groupie whatever ladies ladies of the road too yes ladies of the road to electric boogaloo 
but yeah, like the studio version, the lyrics is just just typical 70s rock. But then John Wetton just had to go ahead and come up with the most revolting, disgusting lyrics that I have ever heard. The one about eating a miner's ass? Yeah! What the fuck? What, what was wrong with what Richard Palmer James wrote? Is that woman the, the one who tried to marry him at the time? Who was like 14? Uh, well, who knows? But... I don't know. I'm, I'm just stirring the pot and being a weirdo, <laughs> but... I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, the song is, like, what Richard Palmer James wrote. It's just about, like, just some random groupie. Just, like, you'd assume she's an adult, but then John Wetton just had to go and make it about a teenager. Yeah, it's it's, it's just about... I think it's just about, yeah, wanting to get with a prostitute, and it's a case of, like the prostitute knows what she's doing you know she's making easy money yeah so then like implying a teenager but if if we're gonna go with the studio lyrics if we're gonna take that little verse out because it's technically not official i would almost say the lyrics are slightly like sex positive in a way that like the the woman if we're assuming she's a woman like she knows what she's doing, she's about it, and she doesn't make any sort of qualms or like misjudgments. She's like, I am who I am, I do what I do. You know, she's like taking control of it, which I can respect. You know? Yeah. If if it's a minor, nah. No, no, don't no. But but other than that, it's fairly straightforward, I think. There's not really too much to go to in the lyrics. They're easily Yeah, like it's very very like classic rock like i'd say this is probably the closest that they ever got to just like straight up like heavy classic rock like a lot of other bands were doing around this time yeah it's just like this really heavy riff and then just like these short verses and yeah (laughs) like like i'm almost thinking that if they did a proper radio edit of this track it it would have gotten like radio play at the time. Yeah. But as far as I know, they did not do that. Yeah. Um, it was like, I'm just thinking ladies of the road, for example, that had like that bluesy thing going and like, yeah, simple enough that it had potential as a single, but Peter Sinfield's lyrics. Well, as far as I know, they never, they never tried. Yeah. So we'll never know if that actually worked or not. And trust me, I've listened to many a song with worse lyrics than Easy Money or Ladies of the Road that are very, very popular. So Yes. So I don't think the lyrics would have played that much of a deal. If anything, they could have just been the band associated with it or not known for album stuff or not known for single stuff. Or with Easy Money's case, the fact it's a seven-minute track that my thing is how would you edit it down? Because you have that middle section, which is some people complain about the middle section on this track. Yeah. Like, really? The main complaint I've heard about Larks is that the album in general is that it doesn't capture the live sound 
of the Mir era or the era post Mir. Um, that the live stuff has that bigger sound, especially for something like Easy Money, which, yeah, the Wet and Era live versions of Easy Money, I think, are better than the studio version. They just pack much more of a punch. And yeah, the middle I, section is usually I, cut down. Yeah. Aside from those atrocious, revolting lyrics, there are some really great versions of Easy Money Live where Fred just, just really nails the guitar solo and like the jam that they get into is just spot on. Yeah. And all of it's just like fantastic. The Night Watch is the standout for me. Oh, God. Yeah. I, uh, I also listened to uh, the one from Glasgow. Yes. That's, that's another really great one. And I quite like the one, I think it was from New York, where they go into like that long uh, improvisation right after it. I forget the name of the improvisation, but it has like a really good wet and bass riff in, in it. Mm. Um, here, I'm going to look it up. But it, it's the one that um, the video of is on YouTube. Oh, yeah, that was in New yeah. York. Yeah, it's just I know that improv has a name to it because they did release it on one of those like many wet and era box sets. I just cannot remember what they called it. Yeah, Central Park, June the 25th, 1973. <laughs> but I don't know. In any case, that one's really good as well. I don't think the wet and era did a bad live take of easy money because it's just it's a very easy song to play and it's very jammy and it's loose and you can really just kind of let yourself go free and with that middle section with mir still in the band it gets very quiet and they play with dynamics quite a bit um, with all these like weird voices and weird percussion instruments and voices there's a lot of little intricate things that happen yeah but- a lot more studio experimentation Yes. It's like that... there's there's a similarity to in the court here where their live stuff was just so different. Like they were just so much louder. Whereas like in the court, a lot of that album is like very soft. And it's it's kind of similar now with the the Wetton era. They used their time in the studio to do more experimentation and just mess around with what was available there. And then they'd go on stage and it was just, that was just them with their instruments, just just doing their thing. Yeah, like to me, live, this is the Flying Brick Wall song. Yes, yeah. I was about to bring that up. This has like the perfect example of that wall of sound. You can barely hear David's violin, like barely getting it in at all, really. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, there's the violin comes in on the very last verse and it really just adds that extra extenuation to to close out the song. But yeah, um, and it's like it's really aggressive, especially compared to Exiles, where that violin was just so soft and melodic. This is violin being used as a rock instrument. Yes, absolutely. And despite the lyrics, I would argue that this is the studio version is Wetton's signature vocal. And that the tone he's getting out of his voice, his cadence throughout the entire track, to me, that is John Wetton personified as a singer. It's got all the weirdness of it, which he never truly shook, no matter how much he tried. And again, he sells it because he's Wetton. 
you know, even the gross stuff live, he, you know, he would throw in that little sting and, and it was convincing. And I think that's why people never really gave it shit. Cause it was more, it was convincing, you know, the people were just like, Oh, he's really going for it instead of reading into the lyrics, but who knows? Yeah. And I, I mean, people only heard those lyrics in the seventies when they were at a King Crimson show. Yeah. And I, I can't imagine that they had a lot of like female fans or really any, any fans other than like these, all these cisgender, like cishet dudes. And in the seventies, like they're not going to object. Like no one in 1973 is going to walk out of a rock concert and be like, those lyrics are so problematic. (laughs) Maybe somebody, but that was a, a big minority, but Question. Do you think they recognized these lyrics and how weird they were? And that's why in I believe it was 2017 or maybe even earlier than that, Jocko decided to rewrite the lyrics to this. Oh, yeah, of, of course. Of course. They, they were like, we can't fucking sing this. <laughs> I mean, they could have. In fact, I think he did. Oh, God. I, th- I think the... Early versions of Jacko era Easy Money are the original studio lyrics. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Like, yeah. I think the live video that's on YouTube of them doing Easy Money from like, I think it was like 2014, is that, is the original lyrics. Cause when I would listen to it, it wouldn't, you know, it was just like, oh yeah, they're the words. But I guess later on, he decided to rewrite them. I don't know why. Maybe he felt icky. Though I think and they're his, so bad. Oh, I was about to say they're the most like generic business bad lyrics I've ever read in my life because it's trying to be yeah. like, oh, it's these corporations making easy money or whatever. Like it's trying to be a more modern commentary, but it's not any good. I know. Like it's uh, here for the the viewers at home who don't know these lyrics. I'll, I'll read a few of them. Viewers, people are staring at their phone screens listening to our podcast. That's how they should they're, be listening They're staring at that picture of Bob and Bobby with the album cover that as I so they, lovingly designed. As they should. <laughs> the only way to immerse yourself in the frame-by-frame experience. So, he didn't rewrite all the lyrics, but he wrote rewrote most of them. So, we'll do the opening verse uh, rogue investors on the street, more corrupt and indiscreet, slowly turning up the heat as you crucify both winners and losers. With the banks about to break, as you double up the stake, with your fingers all a shake, you can never tell a winner from a snake. And then wear a smug look on your face with a fix in every race, throw your weight around the place by the conscience of your frozen defenders. That's just dogs by Pink Floyd. What the hell? <laughs> Dogs is more interesting than this. Uh, I know. Because it makes you literally think of a dog in a business suit, I think. You could take the money home. Dog in a trench coat, getting promoted at work. Then he sheds his disguise. Canine surprise. One of my favorite tweets ever. Is that a They Might Be Giants song? You really like saying that in the, in the cadence of I think it's Anna and Eleanor G. Rigby. Oh, to me that sounded like um, the cadence of Anna Ng by They Might Be Giants. Anyhow, let's see. You could take your money home, build your dynasty a throne, recreate another Rome for a price could appease the Almighty. 
and then and then yeah like there's a little bit more but oh yeah there's no guilt when you leave a scar just as long as where you are cheat and lie and you'll get far getting fat on your lucky star boo painful get out of here man if you're so worried about the lyrics to easy money don't sing it yeah play something else (laughs) play something else or if if you're really that worried about like the lyrics or whatever then like maybe change a couple lines here and there in the original if you're that worried about it because wetton already did it so why not but if you're gonna redo stuff in the original like studio version lyrics i don't even know what you change i don't think it's that bad yeah i really don't like nothing about it is profane necessarily you know unless you think moccasin sneakers are like way too x-rated for people (laughs) but the king crimson audience is mainly old people who have seen this band live for decades so it's not like you're gonna you know freak any people out I, I know. know it's like what what's your deal jacko is your mom in the audience I, I i think it's a sneaky way of him trying to add some songwriting into the band because if you've noticed he'll do things vocally or lyrically that are a little different from the original you know with like indiscipline neurotica this indiscipline a little well, different <laughs> well like he changes it up because i think he's I, I think he changes it up because he's probably recognized the criticism of people saying he's not that unique or original. And this is his way of trying to do that. But when he does it, everybody just despises it. And I think it's because it comes off that he's just trying to like taint the old stuff. Yeah, who knows? Maybe one day, just to appease him, Fripp will be like, all right, we'll play one of your songs. We'll play one. <laughs> And then we'll do another episode when he does that. Well, and then we'll talk about it because that'll be interesting. But in any case, aside from that, um, Easy Money from the Jacko era is fine. It tries too hard to be the studio version, in my opinion. It does not have the crazy energy that the 70s live versions have, which I think is what makes it stick out for me. Yeah, the like there's version. no way they can recapture that energy, like the energy that a bunch of guys in their 20s had. I it think was just could. four dudes versus eight dudes between like the youngest one is my mom's age. Well, I don't, <laughs> the, I don't like I don't think it's an age like Pat Mastelotto. I'll argue that mm-hmm. because the other day. I was oh, listening. Oh uh, yeah, Adrian Ballou is a good example. <laughs> well, even besides that, it's just that, the the energy he has. Oh yeah, Ballou's a beast. But uh, what I meant was the other day I was listening to Carlos Santana and John McLaughlin um, Montreux in 2011, sort of like a reunion of the two guys. They did some tunes from the collab album they did in '73 called "Love, Devotion, and Surrender," which is definitely worth a listen. And there's a song on that album I love called The Life Divine, which is like this nine minute insane piece of music. So cut to 2011 live and they're doing it and it still has that same intensity. Mm. Like granted, it's not as insane because, yeah, they're not as young and nimble on the fingers as they used to be, but they make up for it by just having a really awesome version of it. And also the version of Let Us Go Into the House of the Lord is fantastic as well on both. So I think... 
older musicians can still kick it, you know, especially yeah. John McLaughlin, who I've been having kind of a, a love affair with recently, listening to a bunch of his stuff and watching live performances of him. To me, it amazes me how incredibly talented that man is. Like he'll play some of the fastest guitar runs I've ever heard, clean as a whistle, and it'll all like musically make sense. He's one of the few guitar guys who is incredibly talented, but I don't think wanks, you know? Like he doesn't treat it as athletic. He almost, he treats it more, I think, as musical. I think he just has a different sensibility, but, and also he lets his other musicians show off as well. But in any case, and yeah, and what, Fripp is a fan of him, isn't he? Oh, yeah, you can hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you, if definitely you listen, took some inspiration. Yeah, if you listen to the Intermounting Flame, the first Mahavishnu record, mm-hmm. I think a lot of that album you can hear on Larks. Oh, like th- yeah, yeah. Like, I think adding the violinist was an obvious one. Because mm. on the first track on that record uh, called Meeting of the Spirits, like it has some demonic violin lines and I'm like, that's, that's some hmm. Lark stuff. And then their distorted guitar tones from McLaughlin and Fripp are very similar. And yeah. I think the progression and wanting to have that power because Ma Vishnu has power. Like I think Fripp was trying to get that as well. Like I think Ma Vishnu was a big influence on Fripp. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think live he was able to get some of that, but in his own kind of more European style thing whereas ma vishnu is kind of this multinational thing like you have like um like mclaughlin's british billy cobham is american but he was bo- or he's born in panama but lives in america i believe jerry goodman the violinist was irish jan hammer the keyboard player is from the czech republic and then rick laird the bass player i forget where he's from but like they're a multinational sort of collective yeah. Um, but in any case, that, that's a very long roundabout way of saying that like you could capture the same intensity live in your older years that you could in your younger years. Because I've heard other musicians do it very well. Hmm. And Fripp is definitely like he still has the skills. You listen to him, yeah. you can still do it. I think the bigger issue is that there are so many people in the band. Yeah. You know, more people, less space to fill up all the music. And so it like you couldn't have 70s Bill Bruford in this band with two oh, other no, drummers no. like he would just drown them out. He'd just be they, out saying, fuck you. I do it. They I had to get three drummers to make up for one Bill Bruford. That, that's 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 how it goes. He's the doctor of drumming. So and Levin, as much as I love Tony Levin as a bass player, I don't think he ever really got that aggressive style that Wetton has. Yeah, you know, went like would just lay. Yeah, he would yeah. just lay into that bass and would just do these yeah. crazy lines, and then always just smack the shit out of the E string. You yeah, know, like, it's, it's almost I like was he's punching. Just gonna it. say, um, there's like some live versions where you just really hear that. Like you hear the bass just, he's just going like all out. Oh yeah, it's just some really like complicated stuff he's doing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Tony Levin has a very different style. Yeah, a fantastic style all his own. But I think the Jacko era of Easy Money is trying to be more like the studio version, so it's trying to be more contained. But I always thought with Easy Money, the studio version, it feels like the lid on like the boiling pot of water is starting to like shake. You know, it's almost about to burst. Whereas this, the Jacko version, it's just it's stable. 
there's a little bit of boiling, but not enough to like boil over or anything and crazy. Like, I don't yeah. want to say it sounds weak. I think it's just trying to be more kind of complex and kind of weird, but it loses, I think, what makes the original so incredible and such a highlight yeah. whenever you listen to this era of Grimm. Because as far as I know, they played it at every show. Yeah. It was it was a staple of the gigs. And it's it's very, very easy to see why. Like this is like one of their loudest songs, like the most like in your face. The lyrics are just very direct in what they're about. And it's the perfect well, opener. Yeah, like this is just really like goodbye, Peter Sinfield. Exactly. Like e- even though the lyrics are just as gross. Well, John Wetton did that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I doubt Palmer James wanted anything to do with that. But yeah, because like know. you listen to the earlier live versions and the lyrics are the way they are in the studio version. I listened to the live version of Easy Money from the October 13th, 1972 show, Zoom Club. Ooh. And it was really interesting because it actually opened with a flute. Oh, really? Yeah. And and then, like, instead of all, like, the instruments kind of, like, just going out except the guitar and the verses, all the instruments stayed in, like, in the verses. So John Wetton's vocals are just completely drowned out. You can barely understand what he's saying. So is it even more intense? It's shorter. It's only four minutes, but it's, it's something. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's more intense just because, like, the flute but it's is it do you think that version is a version they were thinking of priming for the radio i don't think they were doing anything that they wanted to be on the radio at this time okay okay yeah i think maybe because of cat food was there like one attempt at having a genuine single and it bombed so then they were just kind of like we don't want to bother even though there is a single from the next album but you know, we'll get and then then there were singles throughout the 80s period as well. But I guess this yeah. album Fripp just wasn't thinking about that. Yeah, this isn't the, none of this album is radio friendly material. No. He was trying to do the exact opposite of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've read even like when they were doing like in the court when they were making that album, like they were purposely and deliberately going against all these like common things that you see in pop music or they were seeing at the time. Yet they had a charting single. Yep. <laughs> so figure that one out. <laughs> but I think that's because Core of the Crimson King does have a easy to follow song structure. Whereas Easy Money, it doesn't really have a chorus. Yeah, just like that's the only the... thing missing. I think if it yeah. had a chorus, it could have been I think it could have been a like a minor hit. Yeah, because like the the closest we get to the chorus is just when they they sing "Easy Money." Yeah, that's just more of a refrain, really. Regardless of that, I do really enjoy this song, though. When it comes to this one, it's one of the few Crimson songs I do think the live versions are better, because there's quite a few Crimson songs some people would say just are better live, like in general. Yeah, the like I, but yeah. this is one I would agree with. Because I think the live version just has that intensity about it that I think they were wanting. Like, as as much as John Wetton's lyrics make me throw up in my mouth a little bit, I do think the live versions of Easy Money are better. 
because you can tell they were going for something really intense and they they couldn't really capture that in the studio what they were doing more in the studio was kind of the instrumental section they gave like jamie some space to like show off and do all his weird stuff but when they go into the live versions like jamie's not there so we just got the Mellotron, drums, bass, and guitar. Though it's interesting that like live, sometimes the middle sections would go longer than other times. But what's yeah. funny is the Nightwatch version, what's notable about it is I think it was Fripp in the middle of doing his little guitar thing and just was like, eh, fuck it. And then the band just immediately responded. So I think he mm-hmm. saw like they just wanted to cut it short. So they just did just like on a whim. And I think it makes it even better. And then that crazy fucking Bruford drum beat for the final verse on that version. Oh, yeah. Where he's just going like crazy disco stuff. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really I really like this track. I think it's one of the more definitive Crimson tracks. I wouldn't say it's like a surface level one. If, if we're going like King Crimson Iceberg, I wouldn't yeah. put it at like the first layer. I would put it second layer. Once you're getting into the band, then you get easy money. Yeah, because like I'd say this is like this is an easy song to remember because of how simple the verses are, and then and the riff too. You yes. remember the riff? Oh yeah, it's one of their more simple songs. Yeah, you know, there's not a lot to it in terms of like weird chords or musical progressions or melodies or harmonies. Yeah. It's very straightforward. So, like, it kind of just is what it is. It doesn't even really modulate at all. Yeah, like this just kind of like in the live versions, they, this was just like their chance to just jam. And yeah. then they would do that last verse, keep jamming, then go into the improv. Oh, yeah. And those improvs are always delicious. Fascinating. Yes. Because I think that's where they shined because they yeah. just had they just did easy money. So they're all fired up from the intense one. And then they kind of can just let themselves from that intensity kind of go different. Yeah, whether they bring that intensity down or mm-hmm. or keep it. Like, I, I remember when I was doing my research for Exiles, I forget which show it was, but the improv between Easy Money and Exiles was like 14 minutes. And I think it was just because David Cross had like such a hard time trying to, to fit his violin in with the wall of sound. Did you just like walk off stage? that'd be funny (laughs) is that your is that like your favorite crimson improv no it's just interesting i don't know what my favorite improv would be i have a favorite it's um it appears on i believe the 40th anniversary of red probably mentioned it before because i i have the name in my head i just want to be sure it's correct it's on like the expanded version of red it's a voyage to the center of the cosmos I was going to guess that one. Yeah. That one's really good. Because it's like, how long? It's it was like, good enough that they gave it a name. Well, they named all of them. If you go to the box sets, all the improvs have names. Even yeah. if they're dumb, stupid names that don't make any sense. Sharks, Lungs, and Lemsick. Exactly. But yeah, that one. Tight, like, scrummy. Exactly. <laughs> loose, scrummy. Providence. <laughs> Which is like, that's one of the better improvs, and they gave it such a blank-ass name. Yeah. You know? I really like Providence. Spoilers, but yeah, Voice of Center Cosmos is probably my favorite just because it's this really intense 15-minute journey that goes places I think even some of the best of Crimson doesn't go. 
you know yeah. there's something about that one because you can make an argument for uh starless and bible black as an improv which some people do and say it's like it's a brilliant improv and i think it is but you know i don't want to get too deep into that track but um but voyage center of the cosmos is my is my favorite improv it's 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 something magical. It's probably my favorite improvisation mm. from like a rock group because I've listened to like some free improvisational music in my day. Yeah, you know some some um, Fred Firth from like Henry Cow doing some free improv, <laughs> some Anthony Braxton. But in any case, back to the improv thing. Like King Crimson got me interested in the idea of improvised music. I think there are for a lot of people the introduction to the idea of a band just kind of winging it on stage, you know? Cause I think you would get kind of get that. Let's see. People have that stereotypical idea of jazz. That's like, Oh, you just wing it. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's a lot more to jazz than that. And there's a lot of jazz that's very composed and doesn't move at all. But, um, King Crimson and the way they would improvise throughout all the different iterations really kind of opened my eyes to how interesting improvised music can be. Yeah, like it's just really fascinating to listen to because you can hear the rest of the band starting to catch on to whoever starts the improv, whatever their idea is, they start following that. Like earlier today on my Spotify Daily Mix, uh, We'll Let You Know came on from Starless and Bible Black. Not to get into that album or that song, but like that's like a really good example of an improv from this era. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They vary. The improvs yeah. from this era. We can get more in detail on the next album because pretty much half the album is improvised. They would get a lot of different material out of these Easy Money Exiles improvs, whatever mood they were in. And even when they would just, with some like Voyage to the Center of the Cosmos or even Ashbury Park, they literally just took a section of the show just to improvise. Like not following a song or beginning a song, they would just be like, all right, here's like a section of like 10 minutes. We're just going to go for it, which I think happened later because I think they realized improvisations were how much they were happening, that they were probably thinking we should just like section off a part of the show to just do it and see what happens. Yeah, the improv between Easy Money and Exiles was in the early Larks tour in like early 73 when they were opening for the Eagles in America. Imagine Eagles fans listening to that. Like getting coming the, for Hotel California. The first thing you hear is Lark's songs in Aspic Park. Well, one. Hotel California didn't come out till like 1975 or 76. Oh, well, well pardon me for knowing nothing know. about the Eagles. Well, that's your <laughs> fault. They're only one of the most beloved bands in American history. Or so I'm told. They are so uninteresting. <laughs> I'd say the... <laughs> The, the most interesting thing about the Eagles that I can think of is that they get a shout out in a Steely Dan song. Because <laughs> they had a quote unquote rivalry. But in any case, King Crimson's over for the Eagles and that's got to be weird as hell. Yeah, like I, I can't imagine how that billing came together. Yeah, like it reminds me of like when I learned that Mahavishnu Orchestra opened for ZZ Top in the 70s. What? And I'm like, I've never heard a more mismatched (laughs) pair of bands in my entire life. I like them both. I do like me some ZZ Top, but like, why would Mahavishnu open for anybody, especially when it was the original lineup? 
You know, like, no. Like, the original I, lineup of Mahavishnu Orchestra. Yes. Lachlan, Goodman, Codman, Hammer, and Laird. Yes. The original. Holy fucking shit. I also, I think I also read that they opened for ELP, which makes a little oh, more God. sense. Yeah. makes Yeah. But again, it's like, I feel like if I went to that show, I'd end up hating ELP. Like, they're shit compared to Mahavishnu, man. Yeah. I'm like, it, it's just such a different... It's such a different experience. No instrumental band should be opening for a band that has vocals. I disagree like, with that. Well, I don't know. I think I, mean, it's, this... I think it's just because Mahavishnu they're they're known for being power, like and explosive and intense. Yeah. People have talked about hearing them at the time and like literally getting blown away by the sound because it was just so loud and insane. They would just play a million notes perfectly fast as possible as clean as possible and just everyone be like shell-shocked at the end of one of their shows and it's like yeah, whatever the- band you were like how do you follow that even zappa like they open for zappa and it's just like how the fuck and i love me some zappa but like i don't know how we could follow mahavishnu that we did get influenced by him because he did change his music slightly which is how we get roxy and elsewhere but that's a that's that's the zappa stuff though i don't think zappa was ever influenced by king crimson though I've only ever heard him comment on Crimson one time, and that is he did an interview with, I think it was MTV in like 1984. And I guess this was like back when the term progressive rock was like a new term and they were trying to like define what progressive rock was, you know, and they mentioned, you know, the normal, yes, Genesis, Pink Floyd, King Crimson, Procol Harum, Traffic. They even threw at the end, which I thought was weird, Devo. Yeah, that's a little after uh, like, the whole prog like even, movement. Even the first Devo record, to me, isn't prog. But again, it's like, that's more like kind of like artsy punk or post-punk, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's but, not prog. <laughs> yeah, not at all. And Zappa agreed. But like, when they named him those bands, he just went, is that progressive rock? Being the smug little prick that he is. And then they went through the list. And when he got to King Crimson, like, are they progressive rock? He just said, sometimes. <laughs> wow. Which I'm thinking like, well, if it's 1984 and your most current knowledge of Crimson is the 80s stuff or just three of a perfect pair, like, mm. yeah, that's not very prog. Like discipline is prog, but I wouldn't well, say think- perfect pair of prog. I don't think Zappa even listened to 80s Crimson because... This is just it my probably, assumption. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably would have been weird for him hearing Adrian. Oh, God, yeah. The, I'm sure you know that story of, like, with Bowie. <laughs> Fuck you, Major Tom. Yeah, yeah, he was <laughs> he was a bitter little bitch about it. Did you ever read the part two of that? No. Because Baloo talks about, like, um, after that incident, he um, he went up to Frank to talk about it. And apparently Frank had said to him that once this tour was done... He was going to take a few months off to do the Baby Snakes film. And the idea was he was going to pay him a retainer to stay with the band in the meantime. But um, Baloo said to Zappa, he's like, well, like the tour's ending. And then like two weeks later, Bowie's tour starts up and it's going to be in the middle of your break. So he's like, it would make more sense if I just went and worked rather than just hung on the retainer, you know. And according to Baloo, him and Zappa shook hands presuming Zappa understood, which I'm assuming he did. But before he left, there was one song, I forget the song, 
where Frank changed the lyrics to be about like Baloo and Bowie. Oh. It, it, it's not it's not the worst thing, but it's one of those. Again, it's like when I read it, I was just like, Zappa, you're you're a petty bitch. You, you were just a petty bitch your entire life. You know? Yeah, he was. Yeah. I mean, I love I love the fucking I love the music like that shelf. That CD shelf right there is all Zappa. Nice. I love I love his music. He's fucking brilliant. But as a man, I don't know. So anyway, roundabout way of saying that, yeah, King Crimson opened for the Eagles and it was weird. It was very weird. I can't can't imagine what the Eagles fans thought of that stuff. I can only imagine. Or um, do you think there was anybody who went to that show specifically for Crimson and then left when the Eagles showed up? That would be me if I had a time machine. (laughs) I mean, concerts back then were super cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, might as well. So, <laughs> so any final thoughts on Easy Money before we wrap this up? Yeah, I'd say that this is definitely a highlight of the album. Really, like it's just such such an interesting track, despite its simplicity. There's that simple rhythm, but then they just do so much experimentation in the studio, and then we just get these these amazing live versions. Of course, minus the lyrics. But yeah, like this, if I were to show someone or try to explain what King Crimson sounded like in the mid 70s, if if I were ever lucky enough that someone wanted to talk to me about this and learn about King Crimson from me, there's always someone. If I didn't show them the whole show, I would just show them like easy money, improv exiles and just be like, yeah, this is what they did. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah, and especially with like those two songs, like you get like that really intense, heavy, hard rock side of of Crimson, this era, and then Exiles is really soft. So yes, yes, just really shows like that variety and what they could do. And in both cases, you get John Wetton's amazing vocals because both of them, I think, are top tier for him so Mm, yeah absolutely so that's going to conclude easy money and conclude this episode of frame by frame so thank you all so much for listening we greatly appreciate it if you ever want to email us just go to frame by frame pod at gmail.com and uh, shoot us your thoughts on easy money or any of the previous or future songs that we're talking about like please give us your opinions on these songs because I, I, I would I would be most interested in reading them and then commenting them on the show. So you should do that. That would be that would be most interesting. But anyways, until next time for the talking drum, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye everyone.